0: Hello Freedom Fighters, thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Open World Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Today I'm joined by James Shramko. James was a top-performing salesman at a car dealership where he earned two Mercedes-Benzes as company cars, but he felt like there was not enough meaning to his life. He was chasing arbitrary moving targets. Despite the money he was earning, there was always pressure to earn more and buy more things that he didn't need. It was a constant cycle of needing to overachieve to pay off huge debts. So he started to question things and decided he wanted to strike out as an entrepreneur and set the goal for himself to earn as much through self-employment as he was earning at a sales job. And as a result, he's created a successful SEO business and a design business. It took him about two years, and towards the end of that period, things started to really accelerate. And now he's created a brand and coaching business called Superfast Business, which helps entrepreneurs to accelerate their business performance and reach the massive success that we all dream about. He's the guru that the gurus go to when they need help with their business problems. I'm super excited to have him join us today. James, welcome, and thank you for being here.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Denny.
0: So perhaps you could tell me in the audience a little bit about your background uh, so we can get to know you a little bit and how you got started.
1: Sure. Uh, Went from school to a few different odd jobs while I was figuring out what to do with my life and I thought I'd start accounting which is weird if you know me now. Uh, Didn't quite finish accounting. I ended up in a debt collection role over the telephone which was my sort of eye-opening welcome to the world experience. And from there, moved through uh, uh, finance, technology, and then into the motor vehicle industry when I needed to make a lot of money because I was about to have a baby and uh, This was in the mid 1990s so through that sales role, I performed really well at that and became uh, a sales manager and then a general sales manager, and uh, ended up being a general manager in a Mercedes-Benz dealership where I was responsible for running the whole thing and turning it around from a negative situation into a positive profit situation. So it was quite a challenging environment. And from there, as you correctly said in the beginning, I realized that I probably should apply all this knowledge to my own business. And uh, probably about 10 years ago, I sort of started that transition period of doing two things at once until I could let go of the job and over the last eight or nine years, I really just focused on building my own business into a way that, that I like to have the business that provides to a good income and also the ability to have a, a life around that income and not let it consume me into some grinding, hustling, you know, machine like cyborg. <laughs>
0: You mentioned that you are able to apply some of the things that made you successful as a salesperson to your entrepreneurial business. What would you attribute your success uh, when you were working at that Mercedes-Benz dealership to?
1: Well, I was always reading a lot and applying the stuff I learned. I noticed that's one thing a lot of professionals don't do, is they sort of get to a point of where they're at and then they repeat the same year, year after year after year. And I always wanted to move forward so i felt i wanted to progress so i wanted to challenge myself so i keep resetting my standard and seeing if i can up the bar and um and refine and distill so i got used to change and comfortable with the idea of change and i'm not afraid to innovate and try different variations on things and challenge myself and i think coming from a an environment where It was heavily uh, sort of performance-based, you know, debt collections, you're always as good as your week on the telephone. Uh, In sales, you know, you're only ever as good as your last month of selling. And in general management, there's always targets and objectives to achieve for the business owner and the automotive uh, uh, manufacturer uh, who are very demanding. So because of that environment, I always got used to recalibrating and and setting the bar higher. So I think reading and applying information, especially around any topic that I wanted to get good at, whether it was selling, communications, negotiation, psychology, uh, self-development, all of these things I just absorbed like a sponge. And of course, in Mercedes-Benz, a lot of my customers were very smart people. So I was able to take on the lessons that I was learning from these very, smart, high-powered business people, imagine if you had a whole lot of customers like Donald Trump but maybe with better hair and not quite a psycho, you got uh, a really good cross range of, of sort of insights from billionaires, movie stars, uh, political heads, heads of state and uh, you know, people running their own silent profit machine in the background where no one was looking like in junkyards. And, uh, and, and garbage trucks, like just the most incredible industries I got exposed to, I just soaked it all in like a sponge and learned all the lessons that I possibly could and, and many of them started offering me opportunities which sort of piqued my interest to really make sure I studied more and, and checked out the legalities and the accounting ramifications of starting my own business which is how I sort of led into having my own business.
0: So you were just learning and becoming better every day and then most importantly, you were implementing what you learned. How do you know whether someone gives you advice and whether it's good or not? How could you tell?
1: Well, my grandfather taught me to have a good look at whoever you're getting advice from. You want to make sure that whoever you're getting advice from is qualified to give that advice. So A classic example is the four-hour work week. You wouldn't take advice from that book from a single young guy uh, if you have a family because it's not relevant to you. It has no context to be able to – he's not qualified to comment on hacks and lifestyle things because when when that book came out, I was knee-deep with four kids, a couple of investment properties and some share portfolios and it's just not relevant. So I would have been better to take advice from a really successful customer of mine who had a family and set up good business structures and uh, was making a good profit. So you can filter out a lot of advice by qualifying people to make sure that they are the right person to get advice from based on their own achievements. And that would pretty much put a line through a lot of the would-be advice givers that are out there in the world because if you ask them any sort of questions, what you'd find is sometimes they won't reply to you at all. Uh, secondly, they'll never validate or verify or prove anything they're saying because they're th- purely theoretical. Um, and then there's just common sense. You know, They're too good to be true. You could pretty much screen those ones out. There's a lot of opportunists out there looking to separate money from the gullible and, and hopeful, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think that's the common stereotype that all of us have, that these gurus are just um, taking your money and that's, that's how they earn a living. But your, your advice here was that uh, find someone who's very similar to your situation, where you are, where you want to be, maybe just a few steps ahead. Is that right?
1: Well, as many steps ahead as you can get access to, <laughs> ideally. But someone who's got a good, clear, someone who's established a path that um, is the most contextually relevant to where you're at. Okay, great stuff. So how has your lifestyle changed since
0: you made the transition from where you were to where you are now? Can you just give me a peek into... Oh
1: dramatic difference and, um, <laughs> if you go back a decade ago, i would have uh, I was probably a little overweight, uh, a little pasty in the skin color, and um, a little unhealthy with the diet and I was putting on a suit every morning, driving into an office, going into the pressure cooker of a hardcore environment, a very male dominated uh, heavy ego um, highly Arrogant company, uh, you know, with dictates and demands coming down through from overseas, and they had all this pressure of competition where a customer could buy exact same product from any one of seven places within thirty minutes drive, uh, and then all these constraints, you know, um, on us about what we can and can't do. So it was very frustrating. It was very challenging. Uh, and then after a full days of work, I'd go home. I'd uh, have dinner with the family, tuck the kids into bed and then I'd have a shower and get changed and then I'd work on my home business from about 9.30 at night till 2 or 3 in the morning and then I'd start the whole thing again the next day at 7 or 7.30 and it wasn't uh, a cycle that I ever want to go through again. It was definitely unhealthy. And it was uh, it was that that t- time when I could sort of see the possibility of being able to escape it, but it was still feeling like a long way away, and it was difficult. But th- these days it's very different. I place a huge priority on sleep, exercise, uh, doing uh, um, things that that really I'm super passionate about, especially surfing. I surf every day. Um, I eat well. I'm uh, in much better shape and I'm working on creative pursuits that I enjoy and I've scheduled those in so that the rest of the time is mine where I like to read, watch movies, uh, have have discussions with people about interesting subjects and, um, you know, that, that's it's just a completely different life a decade down the track. And um, when people see the now me, I think they sometimes forget what I had to go through to be there and that really was decades of working in the trenches and putting in the long hours and the hard work. But I think some people forget to let go of that when they do have the choice. And that's, that's something that I see. Some people celebrate workaholism and, and grinding and hustling. And um, it's really not aspirational to know that your hero is working 19 hours a day. Uh, and you just think this can 't be sustainable, so i 've focused much more on a sustainable business model, which I, I would like to be able to do f- for the next ten years at least. you know I feel it 's more like the way that I would would retire is the way that I want to live, which doesn 't mean doing nothing; it means doing stuff you love. I love
0: where this conversation is going and Yeah, there's so many types out there that just 19 hours a day, like you said, and by the time that they're 30, they're already getting gray hair, uh, starting to fall out, and they're just missing out on life, I feel. And I think that every person has to kind of go through that fire, like you mentioned a little bit, where they have to pay their dues. But uh, people become addicted to that struggle. They become a martyr. And you're saying that you don't have to be. I mean, you can make your life easier, and I I find that to be true. You know, once, once you build up your platform and you become established, then it, it becomes easier. So I would love to ask you now, let's transition, and how can we shorten this curve? You know, How can we create a smarter business and make life easier for ourselves? I mean, that's a very broad question, but uh, I'll let you start where you like.
1: Where well, I think the answer is in the questions. Uh, if we can question everything, like why are we doing the things we're doing? What's the purpose for this? Where do we want to actually get to? And would we be happy when we get there? If we can start with those questions, we get, a, we get answers. And sometimes the answer might be, I don't know or I'm not even sure. And that's when we should pay more attention to the question and refine it until we can get some definitive answers. It sounds crazy, but some people are working towards a goal that they don't even want because they never actually extrapolated the potential outcome. They don't place themselves in the end scenario first and think, would they be happy? So they actually paint themselves into a corner. And I've seen this a few times. I've caught people when I'm doing a diagnostic review of of where they're at. They've got a lot of things in place that just don't need to be there because it's not even what they want when you talk it through. So it's good to visualize what sort of outcome you're hoping for. That should be one of the questions. What result do you want and once you once you really think through that result, like have a good look around that result and make sure that's what you want because you really do have to be careful what you wish for because dreams come true. And if you focus on these things and you put in place all the steps to get there and you build the bridge and all the other metaphors you could talk about, the train tracks to get to the station, you you can actually get there. Uh, but make sure it's where you want to be. I think that's, that's a vitally important thing. So if we wanted to fast track how we get there, we just zoom in on what it is that we actually want. We know why that's important to us. We identify the steps that will be required to get there and then we eliminate everything else that's distracting us from getting there. And For a lot of people, I imagine that's going to partly involve their inbox and their social media diet.
0: (laughs) So, uh, low information diet, correct?
1: Well, it's the right information diet. Yeah. People can easily be distracted because sometimes if you're, the result you want is not meaningful enough or it seems like it's too far away, then it's just a little more tempting to, to just play in the meantime. And so far away, we're not worried about it and there's no urgency and there's no deadline. So breaking things down into smaller steps can be um, a positive way to do it. And, and of course, There is a whole argument that it it is quite often hard to know what you want to be when you grow up. Uh, It's like we tell these 17 and 18-year-old kids they've got to go off to university and do a certain degree so they can have a career in a particular job. I think that's a big call. It's Not everyone knows what they want to be at that age. I know I certainly am only just figuring it out Uh, and I'm way older than that. So I think that we should be open-minded to changing our path but – at the same time, I know a few people who are so flighty that they change direction like three times a week and they're never going to make meaningful strides in anything because they just lack the discipline to commit to completing a project. And then, then this sort of leads to a secondary topic of uh, working to your own nature and understanding you know, whether you like to start things or whether you prefer to finish things. And it's, there's a lot of entrepreneurs are great at – Ideas and seeing opportunity and everything and starting a thousand projects and finishing none of them, so for those people, they need to put in place a structure uh, to to help them get completion on some of these things if that's important for them reaching the result they want.
0: and I know you're also really big on efficiency and performance and um, you know just being really competent and making those results happen really quickly. How do you, when you work with someone, how do you help them to create this structure to manifest
1: these goals? Well, I think I prefer effectiveness to efficiency. Um, okay. I like a Peter, Peter Drucker quote um, it's better to do the right things than to do things right. So um, I'm always just helping people make good choices, which is to review the potential choices that they have available to them. Make them aware of any others they may have overlooked, and to then commit to the the most vital thing as a priority and this is also described as an eighty twenty uh it's covered in books like the One thing, where you know just only a few things actually matter, and all the rest could you, we could do without so I'm often helping people delete, eliminate, reconfigure, uh prioritize based on all the things they think they have to do, often we can just remove most of that and just give them a clear path. So if you like, it's like shining a torch in a dark room and saying, go there. And it's much easier if you have less inputs and you can uh, move along without the distractions and the interruptions. And the way that I do that is by using frameworks. I'm quite a fan of checklists. So by using diagnostic checklists, I'm able to find faults and rectify them. In much the same way, I learned that that's how they fix problems in motor vehicles. If a customer's complaining about something with their car, the technician will ask them a series of questions, and then they'll diagnostically eliminate potential issues until they find the cause, and then they replace or rectify it, and then, then everything's fixed. And it's it actually works in business as well.
0: Is that like the five whys principle where they um, identify a problem and then they ask
1: why? I guess the five whys is a really good example of how to get to the the core of a problem fairly quickly. And it's certainly the the reason Toyota was so successful. Uh, And it's definitely contributed heavily to the whole um, engineering process. But yes, um, asking questions, um, having a diagnostic framework is definitely uh, going to make it easier for someone if they have nothing to start with.
0: Is there a framework available that you recommend? I noticed that when I, um, a few years ago, I used the dreamlining worksheet from the 4-Hour Workweek just to kind of define what I want, like you're saying, and identify the steps to get there. Do you have one that you recommend?
1: Well, I think uh, probably go to Gazelle's and download some of their, you know, one-page strategic plan. Uh, Vern Harnish is really good with that stuff.
0: Okay, I'm just Googling that right now. Gazelle, one-page strategic plan. Okay. Yeah. Gazelle's.com. Okay, excellent. So, so once you've defined uh, what it is that you want, how do you – what's next? I mean, what, what kind of business model do you – or, or what's what's working really well with your clients as far as um, you know cashing in on what they want or what their passion is
1: Well, I tend to look for ways that we can make a um, a recurring business out of it because that's my preferred business model it's It's not a hammer that you can hit everything with you know uh, but it's certainly a growing trend if you look at companies like Netflix and amazon and apple and even your own internet service provider and and telephone communications provider, they're probably all using subscription plans with you. And I like that business model a lot because it really focuses on frequency and having a customer stick around forever is a fantastic way to create value and it's rewarding for you, it's rewarding for the customer. So that's my favorite business model to help people um, because it gives them predictable cash flow. It allows them to um, still be creative and to to innovate, but also give them the stability of of something that they can have as a long term asset.
0: And so, what are some of your favorite uh, recurring business models, like membership
1: sites, or can you give us some membership sites? It's certainly a sweet spot for me, and and service businesses. I've had a lot of success with service businesses and helping people um, package services. So simply hiring labor, creating a schedule of services and selling those services on a recurring subscription. I, I took one business from scratch, passed a million dollars a year in sales um, with that exact model. It started with just two subscription packages uh, that we sold, uh, like a high and a low one. And then over several years, we iterated it and built a team around it and created a saleable asset, uh, which has been a really good case study. And I've been able to help many others replicate that success in their own various service industry.
0: And so I take it that they discover that need through informational interviews, by studying the market, talking with the market, and then you identify the problem, create the service,
1: and... um, that's kind of a nice, fantastical way that everyone talks about it, but it very rarely happens like that. I, it's, it's never happened like that for me, uh, okay. ever. <laughs> I always start with my own needs. Even my very <laughs> first affiliate product was just my own struggle to build a website until I found the right solution. And just like Goldilocks story, I was able to then reiterate that to people on my affiliate site. All the things I tried that were too hard or were too easy and didn't get the job done until I found the one that was just right. And if they buy it from me, I'd give them a bonus. And then from there, I created an information product that supported that from my own learnings. And then from there, I was uh, helping people build websites. And then more people wanted them. And then I built a team. And then they wanted to rank them. So I figured that out. And then I created a service around that. And then Some of the communities I was a member of were missing some ingredients so I thought I could do a better one and started one that that suited me that I'd be happy to log into every day which I've done for about seven or eight years and it turns out other people like that too. So uh, everything I've created is from my own need first and for a lot of my customers by the time I get to them because I don't target startups, I don't target bootstrappers, I don't target people who are just at biz op phase. I target people who are already in motion and just need some help to, to make it better. So they're already doing something and often they already have a service and we just look at how we can modify it or make it work way better than the traditional way that, that people start out. And you know, I believe it's really easy to make $100,000 a year as a service provider you know even if you're just building websites or doing auto responders for people or setting up some kind of tech or designing graphics you can make 100 grand by yourself but it's a whole different ball game to make a million dollars a year from that service because the first thing that has to happen is that you need to get used to the idea that you're going to be outsourcing the thing that you're actually good at and that's hard for people to do and and to do that requires a different set of disciplines than being a creative artist or being the specialist at the thing that you're good at. You now need to start being more of a generalist and uh, being able to organize things like teams and systems and create a you know, replicatable sales machine and a delivery mechanism to supply your customers reliably and consistently. And that means things like getting support out of your inbox and over to a help desk, and setting up billing and, and uh, subscription automations and those things are sort of next level challenges for people who are good at doing design or building websites.
0: Yeah, and it's really, it definitely is a challenge because it's hard to find people that you can trust who are, I guess, autodidactic like you are, you know, who are always learning all the time, who are constantly seeking to strive to improve themselves, improve the process.
1: And well, you don't need many of those people and it just helps if it's you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can create that culture within your team. I found a, a, a lot of success from hiring people outside an industry and training them from scratch over the long haul. They tend to be the best people in the team.
0: So, invest in people and make, that part of, make learning part of your culture, make constant improvement part of your culture.
1: Yes because if you hire specialists all the time you're paying top dollar mm-hmm. you have the least loyalty the most competition and uh it it often ends in tears but if you take people from scratch then you can start off probably at a, a more affordable resource wage in you know commensurate with their ability at the beginning it's not high you put in the training effort you create the culture you get to install that brand new uh, processor with your operating system instead of having to reconfigure or erase someone else's bad programming and you get a more loyal employee who's super matched to your business, who's retaining IP that that harmonizes with your business and if you give them the scope to to do their job and you step out of their way, then their creativity and their ability can astound you uh, and and you have truly powerful people working in your team. Uh, and you know, there are exceptions where you should hire a specialist from outside where you just can't train someone in, in-house. And there's a f- few examples of that in, in super-specialized roles. But for a lot of the typical roles in a business, you can start people off and give them the skills as long as they've got the right talent and the, the raw ingredients that are required to do the job, which might be language, IP connection, um, hardware capability, and you know time zone friendliness.
0: As far as like internally, they just need to have that, that hunger and that willingness to learn, would you say, is the most important quality?
1: I don't know if, if that's super important. I think <laughs> people value training over money and they certainly value appreciation, which is pretty rare in businesses. There's a lot of uh, policing and auditing and uh, critiquing in companies and there's not so much praise and encouragement and uh, vitalization. So, I think that a lot of leaders are not doing a great job of, of that. Um, and we all go through a learning process there, but you know, whether people are hungry or not, you know, sometimes you, you just need some foot soldiers who aren't as hungry, but they're really happy to, to do the job and to put in their fair day's work for a fair day's pay and to have a good attitude about it and to communicate well. And, and we need people like that in our business, that you don't have to have hungry high flyers. That would be an imbalance, I think, to the culture of the business and you're probably going to experience churn and it might be more difficult for you to, to lead. I'm very thankful for some of the people in our business who – just like doing the work and and they do a good job and they can do that for a long time and that, that creates less ripples for us and uh, everyone's happy with the arrangement.
0: So create a culture of gratitude, appreciation, uh, take care of your customers, they'll take care of your
1: employees, right? Exactly. You have some core values that um, that help people understand what it's like to work in your business and one of those values… Might be communication. Another one might be integrity. Uh, It might be uh, that we do work at a higher level than other companies, so that that implies that they'll need to stay on top of their game and educate themselves and to brush up on things. And you can engineer a lot of that these days using tools like Slack, where you can create a channel for a particular topic and you can feed that with. RSS feeds from industry-leading sources for that particular topic. So you can create a training lab within your own business using automation.
0: Okay, awesome. So I'm just I'm taking notes here, so <laughs> that's why I'm, there's a bit of a delay here. Um, cool. So I want, I want to ask you uh, – I guess I'm being a little selfish here, but I, I want to ask you – so I've I read somewhere that you – for five years straight, you were able to double your business every year, and for someone like myself, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with having maybe a handful of clients, maybe four or five clients, and earning six figures, but uh, it's, it's really easy to, to get your first clients to set up that client base. Uh, I can do that through my list. I can do it through Facebook, anything like this, but mm-hmm. how do you – walk me through this impressive marketing record of yours. I mean, how, how do you continue to get leads and clients – repeatedly and double your business every
1: year? Well, you profile your best customers and you ask yourself good questions like, mm. uh, who are my best customers? So obviously, you need to know that one. And what makes a good customer? Why are they good customers? And where can I get more just like them? And what I found is a lot of my best customers would refer me customers because they were already happy. They're, they're easily uh, across the idea that you're a good supplier because they will have to justify their own decision. So simply asking them is a good start. Just, uh, and it's sim- simply just a little script like, uh, hey, Mr. Customer, who else do you know uh, that I could be helping with such and such? Do you and ask- then if you do things like follow-up, which is pretty rare, especially in sales and especially in the automotive industry, <laughs> could you imagine if someone actually followed you up after the sale? It's like, anyway, a week later, you might say, so in the last week, where have you taken your brand new Mercedes-Benz? And they might say, well, I went to golf. I went up the coast. I went to our holiday house. I visited the family. And say, "And and how did people react to it? And they might say, oh, they loved it. They thought it was good. And what are they driving? And they might say, oh, BMW or Saab or an Audi. Can you put me in touch with these people? And often they would. So just a series of questions that are very logical and simple, but no one does it.
0: Do you find that when you profile customers, do you have to have like a specific niche in mind? Because um, I find that when I started, I had a very broad niche, you know, because I had a variety of topics I wanted to talk about, but then it makes it a little bit difficult when I want to uh, target what I offer to these people.
1: Well, the most important thing to know is where did they come from and why did they buy? Mm. which you can ask them when they buy, by the way. It's the easiest time to ask them. Track the source if you can using your analytics. But why did you buy is a great question to ask. And I used to ask that on my information product. Why did you just buy the blah, blah, blah? I survey people when they come to my event. Why did you buy a ticket to this event? You know, what, what are you expecting at the event? Uh, what are you looking forward to? What's your biggest challenge? Where would you say you're at in business right now? I can learn a lot just by analyzing the customers I've already got. The customers you already have are by far your best asset because you know a lot about them. You can predict what else they might buy. You can survey them about what else they buy. You, they certainly would be connected to other people just like them. They offer you a range of, of data um, and that's, that's why companies like Facebook are just exploding because the customers are the product. You and I and everyone using Facebook are the product and they know everything about us. And when you go down to the shopping center and they, they ask for these flybys cards or whatever they're called, they're racking up data on every single person. They know so much about it. So that's where things like big data and predictive analysis are going to be huge and that's why using even the most basic behavioral marketing within your business can get you uh, dramatic effects. So. By, by basically uh, you 're going back to Drucker and doing the right things the right things are whatever worked for you just then, do more of that so if if someone is buying your product, ask them why they bought and then go and fix up your sales copy to make sure you, you drive that point home and then um, you know see if you can upload your audience to Facebook and, and see if they can match that audience with lookalike audiences and tell you who else they think might be just like your customers and that really is like shooting fish in a barrel. Because <laughs> you get inside their head and then you can really speak their language. You have to be able to be the customer. If you want to be good at selling, you have to be able to relate to the customer. You have to be in their shoes. You have to feel their pain. You have to know what's on their mind. You have to know what other choices they might be considering. And When I was selling Mercedes-Benz, I knew the, the literage capacity of every other competitor's boot or trunk, as they say in the States, I knew the leg room, I knew the engine capacity, I knew their um, outputs, I knew their not to 100 kilometers an hour, or 60 miles per hour speeds, I knew everything about every single possible choice my customer could make, um, including doing nothing, which is, I think, a Dan Kennedy saying. You have to know this. If you want to be good at anything, the more research you can do and, and, and put yourself in the best starting position, then the better the outcome's going to be. And This applies whether you're selling vehicles or you're a CIA agent wanting to do an interrogation. The more information you can start with, the better off you'll be in the negotiation.
0: That's great stuff. So- Let me ask you some different ways to, I guess, apply this data that you've collected. You mentioned going out and finding similar audiences, which is a great tip. But I want to ask you, like, as far as creating your funnel, I guess, is concerned, I have, that's that's part of my frustration is I have funnels that maybe like halfway set up because I'm kind of learning as I go. I have a mailing list and all these other things. And I have a product that's maybe $79 and I have maybe 75 sales of that $79 product. And I have all these customers here, but I'm not tapping into them. I'm not fully monetizing these customers. And I'm I'm kind of at a loss, like, how do I create the higher-end product? How do I create the recurring product? Because this is maybe what a product I'm selling is an information product. It's like a business kit. And um, it's, it's sold really well, like, in six months or so. And I'm I guess I'm kind of at a loss, like, how do I create the funnel to fully build it out, like, the way that you have? Because you have... You have a mastermind group that people pay $1,500 a month for, and then you have, um, you have another one that's $599 a year. How can we move up the value ladder once we have
1: this data? Well, you just target those people. Like don't even entertain the idea of, of – like a lot of people target the wrong audience, uh, which is usually the audience who have no financial capacity, um, no real pain, uh, you know, or you can't get to them that's why i i filter out startups, bootstrappers, um, hobbyists they, they're not my market because they're not they don't have a real need yet. so you can you can basically tune your marketing to the customer that you want. like be clear about who you are for and who you are not for. so if you're creating products or free information or attracting people who are after free stuff or if you're selling based on price, discounts uh or um anything that's budgetary focused, like these stupid car dealers who run full-page ads and say, you know, we'll beat any price. Like they're just asking for the worst type of customer that they can possibly get. So it's all to do with framing. Invest more in your design so that the people come to your business and they feel like it's a more expensive business. Um charge a little more for your products and attract the right type of customers just on a price filter alone. And then other things you can do is you can make it more exclusive by not letting people just buy it. Make them apply for it.
0: And I know that you have a waiting list. I know that John Lee Dumas does that as well for his podcast, Paradise, and that's, that's really effective. Do do you say that – are you saying that you don't invest in any – or you don't have any kind of tripwire available? That's maybe like a $10 price product.
1: Tripwire is a bad name because I think that's what they use to blow grenades up or something (laughs) uh, or (laughs) hidden landmines. I have a free podcast which I'm happy to service the world for and a good chunk of those listeners probably don't buy things yet, but they will. It's my number one source of traffic. My marketing funnel is very simple. Podcast, uh, free opt ins for transcripts or free training courses, and then I have my membership. And the people who want the high level one, they kind of know about that. I don't advertise that much at all. It's been on a three year waiting list of people waiting to come in, so that's not really a marketing challenge for me. And my my, my business is very simple, really, um, but podcasts are the best way for me to build up awareness, to service uh, people who want to find out more about me. They can listen to me. They can figure out if they like what I'm talking about. Uh, I can go on guest podcasts, which, of course, I can look under my podcast and I can see what other shows show up for my podcast which tells me what my listeners are also listening to. And I should make a note to appear on those podcasts as well, which I think I'd, I had appeared on everyone that listed underneath mine at one point. So there's a simple, uh, what do you call them? Hack, uh, which is an interesting name as well. But then uh, the, the thing is that over time um, you're going to get a feel for the right way to combine your products into a solution that your customers want and a great place to start is your help desk or if you're still doing it via email, which I would recommend highly against, what are people asking you for? What do they chat to you about in between? You know, when they buy a product, what what sort of conversations are they having with you? What unmet needs are they expressing? What frustrations are they having? Or how are they consuming your product? Because uh, a lot of product creators are supplying products in a way that is just not useful for their audience. People don't sit down and go through 25 videos ever and the completion rate or success rate on most courses is most definitely in the single-digit range for most courses, which is frightening, especially when people invest multiple thousands of dollars so think about how you can create a better result for someone, and try and structure your information that way. And often they would be happy to pay a subscription if you could sustain a need there.
0: Do you set a price point and then create the product, or do you create have a product in mind first and then
1: set the price? Uh, <laughs> price is one of those things, you know. <laughs> price is usually a reflection of your own. Uh, relationship with money and confidence. Okay, uh, But I would say that um, I've probably just set a price that I think is about right for what I'm delivering. And I'm not a greedy person so I don't charge as much as I could and often I'm told that I undercharge. But I've, I've priced it for the long haul. I'm thinking 10 years. Could someone stick around for 10 years? And And sometimes... They stick around for a long, long time and I think we must be close to that point where I have got 10-year customers, which is phenomenal and like really interesting from a case study perspective. If you can set things that don't shake people off too hard, um, the the people who bought my service business are people who I met a time ago and grew and nurtured into success stories and put them through their own commitment and application in a position where they could turn into my biggest customers and then buy my service businesses from me. So that is a sort of real validation for the long haul strategy in my mind.
0: Okay. And do you feel like you need to work to justify the value of these products, like to to clearly convey that they're getting more value than they're paying? Uh, I guess when you, when you say I you have a $1,500 a month mastermind, you're basically saying that all of these guys are high-level guys and that's, that's the selling point there, right? You don't really well, need it's to going to be a lot. different
1: selling point for depending on who the, the customer is because everyone has a different challenge. Um, for some people, no doubt they'd like to be a member to access a group of 30 other people who are like that, uh, who are at a level in their business where $1,500 makes a lot of sense for them to invest in the program. And then for other members, they really couldn't care less about the other people in the program. They're most interested in solving a particular challenge they're having where they can see a huge amount of value in having me on board. Uh, because if you think about it, let's say you had a uh, two million dollar a year business and you wanted to have a partner in that business. And let's say it costs you a million dollars a year in expenses to run that two million dollar a year business. So now you make a million dollars profit. Now, if you have a partner in that business and it's an equal split, you're going to give them five hundred grand uh, as their split, and you keep five hundred, and then you're going to pay tax on that. Let's say you end up with about two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars. Or, instead, you could just partner with me, and I will help you. And for eighteen grand a year, that's what I'll take for my part of the deal, and you get to keep the rest. So now you get a million dollars less eighteen uh, to keep. So that's a way better deal for a lot of the people in my program, wouldn't you agree?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, sorry for the delay. I was I was taking
1: some notes there. (laughs) That's right. I was hoping you didn't have to calculate the difference between five hundred (laughs) grand and eighteen grand.
0: (laughs) So, um, are we going to say something else?
1: Only if you ask me a question.
0: Oh. (laughs) Okay. Apologize. Let me, let me get back my train of thought here. So I was, I was taking a note on, on something you said here. Uh, I call
1: it partner tax, by the way.
0: Partner tax. Okay. Yeah. So Okay. So this, this really just comes down to understanding who these really high-value leads are and just giving them an offer that really makes sense to them and is pretty much a no-brainer, right?
1: Basically, of all the customers you've ever done business with, some of them are more important than others. They're not all equal. This is not a communism. So identify the best customers and if you're clever, you'd be doing lead scoring. So give them points every time they purchase something. But you probably know who your best customers are. But if you don't, just pull up a spreadsheet. See who's spent the most with you and who's the most pleasant to deal with. Start there. Ask them why they bought from you and what they like about it and ask them what other challenges they have and then repackage your program to suit your best customers and don't worry about the worst customers. They're not even part of the the equation they don't count they don't have a vote
0: okay cool so I think I remember reading in a Dan Kennedy book I think it was no BS marketing to the rich or to the affluent and um, they give an example that uh, women who want to find a rich husband they will they give them advice like you've got to hang out the right places like you can't go to KFC you've got to hang out at, at like airports or you know really high-end uh, I guess bars things like this are there certain places that you recommend people go, like to to find these target clients? Like you got to go where they hang out, right?
1: Well, they'll definitely be in higher priced masterminds, just by way of filtering. Um, I've been to, in fact, I was asked to speak as a guest at someone's mastermind, and he charges thirty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. And everyone in that room was quite qualified; they had substantial business interests. And they are a great target customer for me because they have big problems that need solving and I solve big problems. So it was a good fit. And every single time I go to an event like that, I'll make some really interesting connections. I'll end up with some customers and uh, it's, it's a really low effort activity for the high yield. If you just go to a few of those to develop your market, that's the way to go. Uh, you're not going to f- find them in basically those free pitch fest type events. You're going to get the mentality of people who go to free pitch fest events, and that's not the type of event that you want to be attending. Um, as, a, as you know, to look for genius people, what you're going to find is snaky salespeople from the platform making big commissions, uh, having people run to the back of the room in general and there are exceptions and, of course, I was an exception when I spoke at a couple of those until I realized what they were and I was disgusted by that industry. So definitely targeting. I think Gary Halbert put it well when he was talking about having a starving crowd. Um, if, you can, if you can get the right market and place yourself there, then a lot of the hard work's done.
0: Right, and I've been to a couple of those events, like uh, through Learning Annex that like you mentioned, where I'll hear Tony Robbins and um, you know, he'll say, "Do you, if you want to feel this good all the time, rush to the back of the room. I got my products on sale you know, for uh, 75% off my audio cassette, and everyone's stampeding over themselves to, to get that deal. Uh, so that, that's what we, the places we don't want to go, I take it, right? Yeah, you're kidding. The herd mentality. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically what I gathered from what you said is... Uh, <laughs> what can
1: I say? You know how I feel about those things. Oh, sorry.
0: There was a delay there. Uh, so I guess you can find people that you have kind of a business crush on who are already performing at the level that you want to go to, and then you can kind of naturally appeal to their audience. So if there's someone who already already has a high-level mastermind, you can offer value to them. So that might be like a kind of, um, I guess it's called parasite marketing. of a parasite and a host. So you're kind of like an affiliate perhaps of that... Uh, Person
1: who already has that audience, I guess. Yeah, it's a Jay Abraham concept. Host parasite marketing. Okay. It's like iPhone covers for an iPhone. Yep. Uh, that's how I got started with my affiliate promotions by offering a bonus that complemented the product that I was promoting. But yeah, definitely, you know, different audiences are going to have a different vibe. Uh, the, the people who come to my event, for example, are really good people. They pay good money for the tickets. They get pure content at the event. They love it. They keep coming back. The speakers who come to the event sit in every session and are there for the entire event. And they say it's uh, one of the best events. In fact, I think Ezra Firestone said it's the best event that he goes to in the online marketing space ever. And that's where you're going to meet good people because you've got a good crowd. Uh, So I think selective targeting is, is super relevant for everything we've been talking about, every aspect of it.
0: Excellent. So what you do is you just find high-level people and then you offer, uh, you create some kind of opportunity and you say, let's be partners on this. They bring their crowd and suddenly their crowd becomes part of your crowd.
1: Well, generally the high-level people aren't going to be that interested in partnering with you. Um, you have to okay. face that fact. So you're to come up with some compelling sort of magnetism to, um, to make that thing happen. But an easier way to do it is to get introduced by someone who is already in the crowd. That's by far the easiest way is to surf off the uh, bow wave of someone else. And, of course, if you can somehow position yourself to be in contact with these people and and not overcook it, then eventually you'll be uh, accepted by them and and part of that crew and it will open up doors. And if you can help them, that's great. I often help people uh, without question and even without payment just to establish goodwill and to you know, just put some love back out there into the world, and it often comes back. Maybe not from the exact same path, but I've had people help me along the way, and I've helped other people along the way. And I think that's a good karma type thing to do.
0: Well, this has been great stuff. We've covered so much on this interview, and I've taken a bunch of notes. I think I'm all out of questions here. <laughs>
1: is, is there something? A lot of good questions, <laughs> <Thank
0: you>. Danny. <laughs> is there a question that I should ask, but that I haven't yet?
1: No, that that question might have been that question. Um, is you know what else or whatever? But but I would say if there's an overriding theme uh, from this discussion it's just uh, challenge yourself to ask really good questions of yourself and then, you know, direct those questions to your market. And a lot of your problems will be able to be solved if you work hard on the question.
0: Okay. And let me ask you then, um, what are some of the characteristics that you find uh, of the people that you consult with? I mean, what factors most in their success? I mean, you, you mentioned asking good questions, but as far as like uh, characteristics of the entrepreneur himself, uh, which, which ones do you find to be the most successful, I guess? What, what characteristics of like seven-figure entrepreneurs and what separates them from uh, the rest of us?
1: Well, by the very fact that, that the people I'm working with actually came to me, the first thing is they've had humility enough to accept that they don't know all the answers and that they're prepared to get some help. So they are prepared to step into a beginner's mindset where they can let go of the ego of needing to know all the answers and they can accept help. So the ones who are most successful execute better than than the other ones. The ones who still have a little bit of that ego or a little bit um, special – Or I don't know whether you call it arrogant or conceited, but where they still think they're all that and more, they're the ones who turn up less and execute less and they don't get as good a results as they could have if they were able to step away from their need to be the boss. And uh, so there, there you go. One of the most successful people I've ever met is as curious as a toddler, like just asks what would appear to be basic questions Um, And just because he knows the path to mastery is to let go of all the preconceptions and the, the ego and to empty his cup and to take on new knowledge and to rapidly get to a successful result. In the same way that when I wanted to improve my surfing and I hired an instructor for 10 lessons, I had to just accept anything he told me. If he tells me I'm standing the wrong way or I'm looking the wrong way or whatever, I I don't want to argue with him or justify why I was doing it. I just accept what he says as a professional who I've hired to give me guidance and I just do it. And the funny thing is that my surfing really improved a lot when I was prepared to change and accept that the professional knows what he's doing and uh, that I was – I've just got to. I can make that instant decision to change. I don't have to fight it or justify it. And we don't have to justify things. A friend of mine, Seth Ellsworth, said at my own event that the lion in the jungle doesn't have to justify why it chases down its prey. It's just what it does. And we spend too much time worrying about what other people think and and sort of trying to act consistently with our own image of ourselves. We can change our self-image instantly, and the more we're prepared to do that, I think that that elasticity allows us to be more successful quicker. That's a
0: great advice there. And I think it's so true that our, our egos are thieves that block us from making further progress. And you brought up a great point that I guess that most successful people, they listen and they learn more than they preach or they talk. And when they, they get information that's good from a good source, then they're, I guess the other thing you alluded to is that they're really quick to implement it. They don't just sit on that knowledge.
1: Well, it's like you're taking notes during this call when you could have played it back, but you're an implementer, Danny. And it's true what they say about uh, when you teach, you learn. Like I've probably had had the best view to my own training of anyone. I've been to every one of my training sessions uh, with everyone I've ever trained. And I take notes and continually refine and improve my process because I want to be good at it. And that's... That's what mastery is about. It's about never feeling like you've reached the limit or the summit. There's always that next level that you can go to, even when you think you've got, gone as high as you can go. There's unlike um, the, you know, the highest mountain in the world, our own mindset really doesn't have a limit.
0: And there's always more to learn. And I've made it my personal goal. You mentioned taking notes. I've made it my personal goal to implement at least one thing from every podcast interview that I do. Um, and just really, you know, like I've, I've drilled you about your expertise and I, I really want to drill down and, and see, you know, because everyone has something that they can teach us, I feel like.
1: Yes, well, uh, hopefully you can find one thing out of this whole podcast that's <laughs> going to be worth your while.
0: <laughs> it's, it's been very uh, insightful and inspirational and thank you so much for being so generous with your time and knowledge, James. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Danny, and thanks for asking great questions.